Welcome to the podcast of Harvest Baptist Church in Harvest, Alabama. We invite you into our sanctuary as we dive into God's Word with our pastor, Dr. Al Perringer. Well, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. That's where we'll be set up this morning. A couple years ago, there was this uh, documentary that aired, and if you're a basketball fan, you had to tune in. This documentary is called The Last Dance. Anyone see this outside of me? All right. Awesome. So if you haven't seen The Last Dance, it covers uh, Michael Jordan and those great 90s bull teams. And as a kid of the 90s, you had to tune in, right? Uh, this is the greatest team that ever played the game of basketball, right? And people try to tell you about, hey, the Lakers, the Warriors, just, just stop, right? It was these guys. Uh, they they three-peat. I mean, they win three in a row. Mike retires for two years, go play baseball. He comes back, they win three more. And you can't change my mind. If Mike doesn't take off for two years, they win eight in a row. You can't change my mind, right? But this last dance, it kind of covers these years. And, and as going up in the 90s, it brought back a lot of memories, right? You had the shoes. Yeah, the clothing styles they would wear. See, they got to relive some moments that I remember watching. The commercials. Y'all remember those great commercials, right? They were awesome. But I was watching this documentary. There's a point where it shifts from talking about the Bulls, and it shifts to the greatest team ever assembled, uh, the 1992 Olympic team. Y'all remember these guys? You had Magic, you had Mike, you had Mullins. These guys were there. These guys were good. And I know people will try to say, hey, what about the Redeem team and all these other teams for the Olympics? They were good, but they can't touch the Dream team, right? And, and during this documentary, the, the Olympic team, they're flying into France. And there is this huge crowd of people to meet them. They're excited. They are pumped. They want to see the best basketball players that planet Earth has to offer, and they're about to land. And these guys are excited. I mean, there's a huge crowd just gathered. These guys are rock stars. They're getting off the plane, and people are just excited to see basketball players. They're excited to see these dudes just to get a glimpse of one of these guys, primarily Michael Jordan. You want to get a glimpse of this guy. In our passage this morning, Jesus, uh, let's just say he's kind of popular and famous at this point. There's a large crowd that's going to gather around to hear him teach. They want to see him. They want to hear him. They even hope themselves, maybe we can get to see one of these miracle things that we hear so much about. They start to press in on him. This huge crowd is there. And as good as that is, it's going to be a problem for some dudes in our passage this morning. So if you have your Bible, follow along. We're going to read verses 1 through 12 in chapter 2, and it says this. When he entered Capernaum again after some days, it was reported that, that, that he was at home. So many people gathered together, there was no room, not even in the doorway. And as he was speaking the word to them, they came to him bringing a paralytic carried by four men. Since they were not able to bring him to Jesus because of the crowd, they removed the roof, they removed the roof above him. And after digging through it, they lowered the man to which the paralytic was laying. Seeing their faith, Jesus told the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. But some of the scribes were sitting there, questioning their hearts. Why does he speak like this? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? 
Right away, Jesus perceived this in his spirit, that they were thinking like this within themselves. And he said to them, Why are you thinking these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic? Your sins are forgiven, or to get up, take your mat, and walk. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he told the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take up your mat, and go home. Immediately he got up, took the mat, and went out in front of everyone. As a result, they were all astounded and gave glory to God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. Lord, as we get ready to dive into your word, I pray, Lord, that you will open up our hearts and our ears to you. Lord, I pray, Father, it is your words that are being spoke this morning. I pray, Lord, that the truth of your word, uh, Lord, will just pierce our hearts this morning, Lord. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Uh, this passage is the gospel in micro. If you're familiar with the gospels, you get, the gospels are full of Jesus' teaching. It's full of Jesus' healing. It's also full of the Pharisees condemning Jesus for blasphemy. They do this all the time. And it's full of Jesus being vindicated, uh, seeing victory. In this passage, Jesus, he's going to be teaching. Jesus will eventually heal. The Pharisees, they're eventually going to condemn Jesus for blasphemy. And then Jesus is going to be vindicated. And as we walk through the story, there's two emotions I want us to pay attention to this morning. And these two emotions are going to drive everything, especially for these men carrying their paralytic friend. These two emotions is desperation and urgency. Okay? These two emotions, as we walk this text together this morning, these two emotions are very well going to be in play. To kind of catch us up to where we are in, in Mark chapter 2, in Mark chapter 1, uh, we see Jesus doing Jesus things, right? He's healing. Jesus is being baptized by John the Baptist. Jesus is acting. He's been doing things. He's doing things very much that we would picture him doing in his earthly ministry. And then we get to verse, verse 1 in chapter 2, and it says this. When he entered Capernaum again, after some days, it was reported that he was at home. It might sound weird to some of us that Jesus was at home in Capernaum because if you're like me, there's times you thought, well, Jesus doesn't even have a home, right? Like, in his earthly ministry, where did Jesus say? He didn't have a home. If you want to send an Amazon package to Jesus, you wouldn't know where to send one, right? Or maybe for us, it's like, well, wait a minute, I thought he was from Nazareth. Why is he calling Capernaum his home? Well, we got to go back to, to chapter 1 for this answer. In chapter 1 of the Gospel of Mark, which actually the Gospel of Mark is actually the Gospel of Jesus just according to Mark, but Mark probably got his information from Peter. But in chapter 1, we see Jesus in the home of Simon Peter. And while he's in the home of Simon Peter, Jesus actually heals Peter's mother-in-law. She's become ill. Jesus heals her. She jumps up, starts doing mother-in-law type things, preparing them a meal, starts doing all the things she used to do. So more than likely, when it says Jesus at home, he's at Simon Peter's house. This is probably his base of operations, more than likely. And so this is where we find Peter. He is at home at Simon Peter's house, and this crowd begins to show up just to see and hear Jesus. Word has gotten out. This is where you can find Jesus. And so people are like, we got to go. Verse 2 says this. So many people gathered together. There was no more room, not even in the doorway. And he was speaking the word to them. Jesus began speaking. And when Jesus taught, 
it was more informal than uh, what we're used to on a Sunday morning. He just get up and people sat down. He started preaching a sermon. It was more informal. He was more relaxed, laid back. People kind of gather in. He was just kind of talking to them, teach them all kinds of things about the kingdom of God. But in this home that Jesus was in, this home would have fit about 30 to 40 people. And that's it. And we were probably thinking, well, 30, 40, that's not, that's not bad. There's a lot more people that end up showing up. Jesus is teaching, and they want to hear him teach. They want, to, they want to hear him say things, and they show up, and they are pressing in on Jesus into the home. This house is packed. It's like the Chick-fil-A dining room during lunch hour, okay? You're eating in the parking lot. You can't get in, right? There's not a place to sit on the floor. There's not a wall or a nook or cranny to get into. This crowd is huge, so much so that you can't even get through the doorway. Great problem to have, again, unless you're trying to get to Jesus. This is going to be a problem. Our four men carrying this paralytic through the crowd, this is going to be an issue. And these guys are going to get very creative. Because at this point in our story, Jesus is famous. He is so, so famous. I don't know how many celebrity encounters you may have had. I really haven't had any. I did have a friend one time who said he, he saw John Cena, but I assured him, you can't see John Cena, right? If you get that joke, great. If not, then great, right? There was one time we saw, so actually, Brian, you, we were together. I think you know where I'm going with this story. I think Brother Al was with us. I can't remember, but we had gone to Chipotle after uh, we were doing something associated. We'd gone to Chipotle. We walk in, and we're in line, known as Chipotle. There's a big long line. And we look over and, and overeating a burrito. I don't know if it was a burrito or not. We're going to call it a burrito. Overeating his burrito was Calvin Ridley, right? Now, I don't know if you know who Calvin Ridley is. He played wide receiver at Alabama, got drafted by the Falcons, gambled, got caught, had to sit out a year. Now he's the Jaguars, right? There sat Calvin Ridley. And we're like, oh, that's Calvin. Now, as Alabama fans, what do we have to do? we got to meet Calvin. Now, what do you normally do when you see a celebrity and you want to get their attention? Yo, Calvin! Actually, we didn't do that. It would be kind of fun if we did, right? We walked over like, yo, Calvin, could we take your picture? Not like with us, not like creepy, like, you know, but can we take a picture with you? And Calvin, he's nice. He, he's like, yeah, sure. He gets up, and we go one at a time. We take our picture with Calvin Ridley, and it's cool. I go to look at this picture at my phone, I'm all excited, like, I'm going to send this to everybody I know. I look at the picture, and I blow it up, man. You look at the picture, and I, my arm's around him, and I'm just grinning ear to ear. You look at Calvin. He looks exactly like you would picture someone looking if their lunch got interrupted to take a picture, right? <laughs> this is what we do. In this passage, Jesus is famous. People want to see Jesus. They want to get a glimpse of Jesus. They want to hear Jesus, the things that Jesus says astounds them. They want to hear him. The stories of Jesus performing miracles has gotten out, and people want to see this. So people start pressing in and pushing on him, and then here comes these men. In verse 3, you find this. They came to him, bring a paralytic carried by four of them. What's happening here is, is they would have been carrying their friend on what you and I probably refer to like a stretcher or a cot, and each of them kind of would have had one end of it just walking him through. Now, what's important to know is this, is these men were not like right across the street neighbors from Jesus, okay? They weren't like, hey, Jesus is home. Well, let's go over and just see what he's doing. These men had traveled. They had walked in the heat, carrying their friend, which cannot be easy, 
They're excited because they know if they can just get their friend into the presence of Jesus, Jesus can do something incredible and cause their paralytic friend who can't walk to walk. But as they approach the home, they see a problem. They see this huge crowd. Their excitement turns to despair because there's a crowd and they can't get in. And they probably did what you and I would do when we see a big crowd and we want to cut through it. You know, excuse me, I'm coming through, right? Trying to nudge your way through. Not so easy when you're carrying a stretcher. But they probably try anyways. Hey, let us through, man. We got, we got our friend here. He needs to see Jesus. We want to get him. Jesus can heal him. Just let us through. Man, no, get away. I want to hear him too. Just go away. People are gracious like that, right? And these men have nothing to do. They can't get in. And I said, at this point, most of us, I know I would have, probably been like, you know what? Let's just go home. Hot. I'm tired. No one's letting us through. Let's just go. Let's go home. These men are what we call problem solvers. They don't just accept the answer that, you know, we can't get through. They think, what are we going to do about it? And they have this mindset, we're going to do whatever it takes to get our friend to see Jesus. And this is the moment where this urgency, the sense of urgency and the sense of desperation starts to kick in for our friends. And they're like, whatever it takes, we're going to figure this out. We are problem solvers. These are probably four engineers figuring this thing out, right? Verse 4. Since they were not able to bring him to Jesus because of the crowd, they removed the, they removed the roof above him and digging through it, they lowered the mat on which the paralytic was lying when you are desperate and urgent, you moved, moved to drastic measures. When I was walking through this this week, there was a series of questions that were asked. And I'm going to be honest with you, when I asked these questions, and I'm going to ask them here in this minute, or at least one of them, and we'll get to some later on, I didn't like my answer. And the reason is because sometimes when you and I compare ourselves to the truth of God's word, we're not going to like what we see. And I'm looking at these men as they are desperate to get their friend to Jesus. And the question I asked was this, are you and I desperate for God? Are we desperate for God? Are we desperate to see a great move of God in our life? Are we desperate to see God change people's lives? Are we desperate to see our friends and family who are lost? Are we desperate to see them come to Christ? And I didn't like my answer. We often get comfortable with where we are at. And we get focused on what's going on with us, which sometimes that's going to happen. But are we desperate for God? That, Lord, I want to know you more. But are we desperate to say, Lord, but I also want to make an impact in the world around me for the kingdom of God. These men, they are desperate. Towards their problem solvers, they get there, they assess the problem, they go, there's nowhere to go. We can't get in, what are we going to do? They look around, finally they see this set of stairs going up to the roof, which isn't uncommon in first century homes. 
Everyone would have owned a, a pair of stairs. You would have gone up to the roof. And the roof isn't like our roofs. Like we, we have these pitched roofs. Our roofs would have been flat, easy to get up on. These men see the stairs. They think, okay, here's our answers. Part one, we're going to get him two up the stairs, and we'll figure out the rest when we get there. Can you imagine what that probably looked like? Carrying a man on a stretcher, and then you see these stairs. How'd they get him up? Right? I do try, listen, I can barely get my Christmas tree up the attic. Forget trying to get a human being up a flight of stairs. And they, so I, I, I can imagine this going wrong a couple times, right? One runs to the wall, maybe some dude slips and falls. I don't know. But they got to get him up there, and eventually they get him up on top of the roof, and they're standing there, and I picture some ahead, they're standing there, and there's like, well, now what? Problem solvers. One dude probably chirps in. We're alone through the roof. How? We're going to dig a hole. We're going to dig a hole. So these men have this idea. They are going to dig a hole. And these men, they are not Boy Scouts. They have no pocket knife. They have no, they, they, they have no shovel in their backpack. They have to get on their hands and knees and start digging. And they dig a big enough hole just to lower this man through the hole to get to Jesus. Can you imagine what kind of kerfuffle that would have caused? If someone came through our ceiling right now, how many of us are noticing that? All of our eyes. <laughs> What's going on here? A little panic maybe would set in. You can't ignore that, someone coming through the ceiling. My first job was at Chick-fil-A at Madison Square Mall. For you kids and maybe some of you teenagers, where Top Golf. Dave and Buster's, all that is now a mall right there. It was glorious. Now, my first job was to play in Madison Square Mall. And to tell this story, you got to understand that the office to the store was not in the store. It was down the super secret hallway that was shady. And all, as all get out, I saw some things, y'all. And there was this office that was on the other side. You had to, like, walk down there. But, you know, you're working the mall, so most of your managers are you know, teenagers, college students who aren't very responsible. And they would lock their keys in this office all the time. There's only one way we get to the keys because instead of just calling someone, hey, can you come unlock it? We decided we would go through the roof, the ceiling tiles, walk on the pipes, and then open the ceiling tiles, go through and grab the keys. Now this happened multiple times. I had gone up there multiple times. One time my manager locks his keys in the door. He comes, says, Chad, can you go get the keys? Sure, done it before. What could go wrong? Things go wrong. So, I remove the thing tile, I get up, I start walking over, and somehow I lose my balance. If you were in the dining room at Chick-fil-A, next thing you knew, there was half a dude's body just dangling. <laughs> right? All attention just... Because <clears throat> who could be stupid enough to fall through a roof? Me! I mean, everyone noticed, especially the elderly couple whose meal I just ruined, right? Ceiling tile and Chick-fil-A sauce probably isn't very tasty. You don't ignore someone coming through the roof. People are looking like, who's that moron? I'm thinking, I'm fired. They took it on my paycheck, though. Can you imagine... 
Jesus is teaching. Everyone's honed in on Jesus. And all of a sudden, you hear some noise happening above you. What's going on here? As these men are pulling and digging and removing things from the roof, things start to fall from the roof. These men had in their mindset that if we can just get our friend to Jesus, because these men, they, they thought that this Jesus is that important. Jesus, everyone hears, Jesus hears. And here's the thing, Jesus is all about their commitment. God is all about commitment. He loves and we respond to the covenant commitment he has made to us. He loves commitment. And Jesus is going to notice this. In verse 5, he says this. Seeing their faith, Jesus told the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. I love how verse 5 starts. It says, seeing their faith. And I love that because he doesn't talk just to the paralytic here. He doesn't say, I see your faith. He pluralizes it. He says, I see their faith. Jesus takes notice because these men had faith. This paralytic, he had faith. If you can just get me to Jesus, he'll be, I can be healed. These men had faith. If they didn't, they wouldn't have gone through all the trouble they went through. And Jesus sees it and he notices it. Here's what I want us to miss when it comes to faith. Faith always demonstrates itself in action. Faith will always demonstrates itself in action. Faith moves us from where we are to where God is. Faith ends up shifting us. Faith must always demonstrate itself in actions. And here's the thing. My actions doesn't always determine my faith, right? Because I'm human. But my faith should always determine my actions. What do my actions, the way I live my life, what does it say? Do people take notice of that? And through the things that I do, am I pointing people to the cross of Christ? Or by my actions, or is it something completely different? Because faith always demonstrates itself in action. From the time we, are, we come to Christ, to the time that he calls us home, Everyone between our faith is demonstrating action. Everything we see that Jesus calls us to do is required action on our part. Jesus doesn't just save us and just put us to the side and go, hey, I'll call you in when I'm ready for subs. There are no subs. You are saved. And he goes, you're in the game. Go. Right? And through that, yes, you are discipled through that. You are taught. You are trained. Yes. But he puts you in the game. And he has called us to a life of action. These four men in their fishing shirts, or what did they have to wear that day? They finally get through. They lower their friend to Jesus. And Jesus looks up and he says something to them that's going to catch them completely off guard. He looks at him and he says, Sins are forgiven. I can imagine this being maybe a confused point to them. All of this. And they lower it down, and Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. What about his legs? As far as they were concerned, no one had the ability to forgive God, or forgive sins except God, right? 
and they didn't recognize who Jesus was. What do you mean forgive sins? We didn't come here for our sins to be forgiven. We came here to heal for his legs to be healed. I know that. You know that. We all know that. They have come for a miracle. A mat replaced for a miracle. This is why they are there. And then Jesus throws a curveball and says, Your sins are forgiving. We live in a world as a whole where people believe that God is far away. That he is distant and uncaring. Why would so much pain and hurt and suffering be present in our world? But we, as a people who follow Jesus, if we are truly a people who follow Jesus, we know that's just not true. And we cannot be satisfied with their, dis- with their disconnect from him. Because God forgives sins. And if we were to ask everyone in this room, who here thinks that God can forgive anybody? All of our hands would go up in the air, right? We believe that God, this is the point of the text. If, if Jesus can forgive sins, he can do anything. And here's another one of those questions I'm about to ask that kind of I wrestled with this week. And again, I didn't like my answer, but here's the thing. If we are a people who truly believe that Jesus can save anyone, if we are a people who believe that God can redeem anyone, he can restore anyone, and we truly, truly believe that, here's a question I'm going to ask. Why are we not bringing more people to Jesus? Don't get me wrong. Our job is not to save. Thankfully, because that'd be messy. Our job is to point people to the one who can. And if we truly believe that this Jesus can save and redeem and restore anybody, then what are we doing about it? We live in a community that is far from God because we live in a world that is far from God. Matter of fact, our community of Harvest Alabama here is just as far from God from Las Vegas, Atlantic City, whatever's going on in the East, Middle East. Plug and play whatever place you have associated your mind with sinful behavior. All right, we are just as far from God as these places. And even more than that, we live in an era of culture Christianity that we would allow people to say that they know Jesus without really knowing Jesus. That's the Bible Belt problem, right? And that should concern us. That should give us a point of urgency and desperation to get the good news of Jesus. To live in a way that points people back to Christ as agents of the kingdom of God. May we live in such a way that we may be burdened for those around us who are lost and dying. In verse 6, come to places. But some of the scribes who were sitting there questioned their hearts, why does he speak like this? He's blaspheming. They love to accuse Jesus of that. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus wasn't, he didn't tell them to go to the temple and talk to the priest and he'll help you in that department. Jesus clearly tells them, your sins are forgiven. And the Pharisees are like, no, 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 that can't be that. No, 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 you can't say that. No one can forgive God or forgive sins but God alone. I like the picture how things play out and I can picture Jesus sitting there. Son, your sins are forgiven. They chip in their, in their hearts and their minds. No one can forgive sins but God alone. And I picture Jesus sitting there right there just going, exactly, exactly. No one can forgive sins but God alone. That's me. 
8-9, right away Jesus perceived in his spirit that they were thinking like this within themselves. He said to them, why are you thinking these things in your hearts? Verse 9, which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or say, get up, take up your mat, and walk? We have this dog. Some of you know my dog. Some of you met my dog. This dog, he's a little shih tzu. His name is Chewy, right? Here's the thing about shih tzu. I mean, here's the thing about Chewy. That's weird, right? He is not your normal shih tzu. He looks like a shih tzu. He does not act like a shih tzu. It's one of the reasons why I got him. I got him years ago for Sarah's birthday. I went to go get him. He was the weirdest dog there. So I was like, I want that one. Give that one to me. I'll take him. If you were to put Chewy, and you would put him with a lot of other Shih Tzus, he would stand out because he's not normal. If you put him with other dogs, he's still going to stand out because he's not a normal dog. Other dogs, they're probably playing with each other, playing with toys, these kind of things. Chewy is going to be chasing the butterflies, eating leaves, and eating bees, right? This is Chewy. He doesn't act like you think a dog should act. Here in this passage, the Pharisees are complaining while overlooking the fact that Jesus is the one they've been waiting for. Jesus is messiahing, if I can use that as a verb, and the professor just did. He's just not messiahing in the way they thought he should messiah, and so they miss it. They expect the Messiah to show up, to show out. They expect the Messiah to show up and build this army and just rule. It's not what Jesus did. Jesus shows up, starts telling crowds to go away. He keeps hiding from people. He keeps going through the process of healing little ladies and healing lepers and making sure the worst of the worst are cared for. And they're thinking, they're not, this is not how a Messiah should act. He's forgiving sins, and they miss him completely. Jesus has been doing messianic things this whole entire time, and they're missing it because he's not doing things they think a Messiah should do. Many of us followers of Jesus, we're wanting Jesus to do things that we think a Messiah should do. Lord, if you can just undo the ugliness here, if you can just undo these coworkers that drive me insane, Lord, if you can just take care of the things that I want you to take care of, then that's cool, that's fine. Like, do these things, but the thing is, is that's not exactly how it works. That's not exactly who Jesus is. He can. Sometimes he chooses not to. They've missed out on Jesus completely because he's not doing the things they thought a Messiah should do. He didn't come to rule, he came to serve. And they don't like it. Verse 10, But so you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He told the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take up your mat, and go home. This is the first time in the Gospel of Mark you see this phrase, the Son of Man. And sometimes this confused, for a long time growing up, this confused me, okay? You, got the, you see the title of Son of Man, then you see the title of Son of God. And we think to ourselves, how can he have the title of Son of Man and Son of God? We've got to remind ourselves that God, that Jesus is fully man and fully God, which to us doesn't make much sense. If I had a glass here and I was like, hey, I'm going to pour half of it apple juice and half of it orange juice, I couldn't then say, well, this cup is 100% apple juice and 100% orange juice. No. It's half and half. Makes no sense to us. But Jesus is in the flesh. He is God. He is man. And he is 
fully God. He is fully man. And when Jesus says, the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins, Jesus says, yes, I do God things and I alone do God things because I am God in the flesh. This is Jesus introducing himself. Jesus forgives. Jesus meets us right where we are. Verse 12, he got up, took up the mat, and went out in front of everyone. As a result, they were astounded and gave God the glory, saying, we never seen anything like this. Some mornings, it is hard to get up. Amen? There are some mornings, and I'm not just talking about us being tired. Physically, there's just some mornings, it is hard to get up. We wake up in the morning, we try to get up, and all of a sudden, our body sounds like somebody's jumping on bubble wrap, right? There's a lot of Rice Krispie treating going around, right? uh, snap, crackle, and pop. You just can't get up. There are some mornings it is hard to get out of bed. I have hurt my back years ago, and so sometimes it acts up. And there are mornings it is hard to get up. Y'all, y'all have been there. You get out of bed, you go like this, you kind of slowly move, and after a while you kind of straighten back up, and you're good to go until you sit down the next time. That's not what happens here. Jesus says, take up your mat, and this man, I picture him just jumping up, right? The crowd, oh, wow, that's cool. He jumps up. And he walks out the very door nobody would let him into. Only Jesus can do that. Because we believe that if Jesus is, can forgive sins, if, if, he can do anything. We believe that Jesus can do anything. He is the Messiah. He is the King of Kings. And if we believe that Jesus can forgive sins. That should impact everything else that we do. Because we, as people who follow Christ, we have experienced what it's like when our sins are forgiven. And we walk in freedom, not to do what we want to do, but walk in freedom to serve and to obey and to live for Christ. And and a huge part of that is us living in action and pointing people back to the person of Jesus. There's a song, I want to kind of close it. There's a song that most of us may be familiar with. It's called Christ Alone. Most of us probably heard of it. There's this lyric, though, years ago that people kind of were debating and people wanted it changed. And, and it said this, On the cross of Christ where Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. Right? Solid stuff. But there was a group of people who said, We can't sing that. We've got to change that. So this is the lyric they want to change it to. On the cross where Jesus died, the love of God was magnified. But here's the thing, the love of God is magnified because the wrath of God is satisfied. These two things come together. This man was healed and jumped up in victory. Friends, we have victory because there was a point where Jesus was paralyzed to death on the cross. But Jesus declared his victory with the celebration of his resurrection. And because of that, sin and death is defeated and you and I have complete victory in the person of Jesus in his finished work in just a few minutes we're going to stand together and we're going to sing before we do told you there's these series of questions that I dealt with this week and they have I have not been able to leave these questions alone okay and so I want to in light of everything we talked about this morning I want to ask you these things and, and I hope that you know, you take these serious and you allow them to work and process through your mind, your heart, and allow God to do what he does. But I want to picture us 
as a friend who may be carrying someone on a cot to Jesus. I want you to think through how you, what does your prayer life look like? How do you interact with God in the daily? What do your conversations with Him look like? Because the questions that I found this week, I have been praying through these and they have not left me alone. Here they are. If Jesus answered every one of your prayers with a yes, how many broken lives would actually be restored or would your property just get bigger? If Jesus answered yes to all your prayers, how many hungry people will be fed? Or our plates just get fuller. If Jesus answers all your prayers, the yes, how many lost people will be found? Again, I did not like the answers. I honestly had to give. Don't get me wrong. There is nothing wrong with you and I bringing personal prayer requests and bringing them to Christ. We need to do that, y'all. Right? And I get it. I pray selfish prayers. I am selfish. I caught that this week. But may our mindset change to the point saying, Lord, you can do anything. And may we be a people that says, Lord, whatever it takes, I want to do that. But may it start with how I pray. Because through prayer, God changes things. He can do anything. So how many of us are begging Jesus to do what only Jesus can do? Because he can forgive sins. He can do anything. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Harvest Baptist Church. For more information, visit us online at harvest-baptist.org or find us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. You can also find info on our children's ministry on Facebook at Harvest Baptist Children's Ministry or on Instagram at KidsQuest underscore HBC. Our student ministries on Facebook at HBC Vertical Student Ministry and on Instagram at VSM underscore HBC. We welcome you to join us on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. We are located at 8999 Waltrana Highway in Harvest, Alabama. Thanks for listening and God bless.